Welcome to Pedagogue, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. In this episode, I talk with Ashanka Kumari about how she came to be a writing teacher, her pedagogies and classroom values, self-care and issues of power, collaboration, mobility, and graduate student professionalization. Ashanka Kumari is Director of Writing, Assistant Professor of English, and Global Human Rights Fellow at Texas A&M University Commerce. She recently published the co-edited collection, Mobility, Work, and Composition. Her writing has appeared in a plethora of scholarly journals, books, as well as journalism across media. To learn more about her scholarship, you can visit her website at ashankakumari.com. Ashanka, thanks so much for joining us. So I really enjoy talking and, and listening to people talk about their histories and educational backgrounds, really kind of how they became a writing teacher or how they came to be a writing teacher and how they got interested in rhetoric and composition. So who or what has influenced you? Is there a mentor, a book, a colleague? Do you mind talking a little bit more about your educational journey and what has informed your pedagogical beliefs and values? Um, so I am an Indian American person, I'm a woman, um, as I identify, I identify also as a child of immigrants. My parents both immigrated to the U.S. in the late 80s, early 90s, and I was born in the early 90s, um, so I'm aging myself a bit. Um, so there's been a lot of influence in my household of just thinking about the value of education, how uh, I might uh, engage with teachers. Like I remember when I was really young, kindergarten, my dad's advice for my first day of school was like, make sure you say good morning every single day to your, all your teachers and ask any questions you have because it's okay to ask, like always reinforcing that it's okay to ask questions um, because that's how he made it here, right? He made it to America by asking and finding ways to get to where he is now. Um, and that's how he's like find, found spaces for me. I'm also the oldest child. So like I've always been the one to kind of set up, you know, our understanding of education at home, like whatever I would bring home was were some of the literacies that I was like sharing with my family. It helped my brother teach teach him English and those sorts of things, right? Because English was my third language. So I didn't like know it um, going in either. So questions are always a thing I try to ask students to do as well, right? Like I, I'm always like, I know it's like, I should have said, there's no such thing as a dumb question, but there really isn't. And whenever students ask questions, I, I try my hardest not to uh, say anything like negative about it. Cause I'm like, no, that's a question probably everyone in the room has and is afraid to ask. And that is awesome. And I like want to celebrate all those questions, right? Um, so thinking about my family first, like just the, the first genness, I'm a first generation student in a family where I'm learning literacies, not just for me, but also thinking about, you know, helping my family understand like what it means to be in America, to think about education, what that means for like upward mobility sort of, um, though I, I don't really like that phrasing anymore, but you know, just moving through the systems that we need to get through to survive, frankly. And I've had a lot of different kinds of teachers. So I grew up in New York City. I was born in New York City, um, but we moved to North Alabama when I was nine years old, which are very starkly different environments. I often call it a reverse culture shock, like, uh, cause it was a very culturally diverse environment in New York where I like never really recognized how difference was happening because it was everybody was right it was just we all are different like I don't even know that there is any other way than going to Alabama where it was like I stood out like as a sore thumb because it was like the only in all my classrooms or whatever that is right um, but just having that kind of array of experiences from the north from the south and then moving to Nebraska for my master's then moving to Kentucky and Louisville for my PhD Indiana is where I lived 
and now in Texas. So I've gotten a lot of different moments of learning in those spaces. I honestly learn a lot, both from the positive teachers I've had and the less so positive experiences, because I think that I learn, uh, I learn from failure quite a lot. Like I, I think up a lot and like, how can we grow from failure? I think it's like Margaret Price talks about that a bit as well. And I've had such a, like a range of teachers, not just in English classes, but also like my band directors, uh, thinking about how we might foster communities and working together in a band classroom and making music and doing those things in a similar way. We might do that in a writing classroom with like writing or research and sharing our ideas and that sort of thing. So just, just an array of experiences that have helped. I try really hard to be the teacher that I always wanted. And that's not to say I didn't have good teachers. I had so many good teachers, but it's that there there's like a great quality in so many. And I want to like make the class like kind of like a gumbo of those things, right? Like pulling some of the best of all the worlds. And I don't think there's such a thing as a perfect teacher. And that's not something I'm trying to be ever. But I think there are like values like openness and empathy and flexibility that, you know, can help really support classroom spaces, both on the teacher side and the student side and then like and beyond, right? This is a pretty broad question and I'll let you take it in whatever direction you want to. But I want to give us the chance to kind of peek into your writing classroom. What practices do you use or draw from as a writing teacher? And this is maybe cliche, but I use a very student first centered practice, right? I actually, one of the, the second slide on my first day PowerPoint, it stays in that space for multiple weeks, sometimes the whole semester, it, it just says you matter. That's all it says. Um, the first slide is, you know, the typical title slide, but then I flip to that slide and I leave it up there for a while. Cause I want to start every semester by just telling students like, first and foremost, we need to think about you. And I, and I think like a lot of what we do in the classroom can only be productive or helpful if we're prioritizing the needs of students first. And I, I know that like a lot of us in the discipline feel that way, but those are some of the ways I try to show that in my in my spaces. More practically speaking, um, I use a lot from a Black feminist and cultural rhetorics approach. And I think a lot about um, scholarship from Patricia Hill Collins and um, what I learned from Drs. Della Mosley and Paris Bellamy at like uh, the Academics for Black Lives and Wellness Institute last summer is, is it's very much a relational approach, right? So I work with students in thinking about like their own positioning and how they're connecting ideas in the classroom and how we're seeing one another and recognizing our own identities along the way, both the connections within and across, right? Like we also talk a lot about power and it's clear there's like power uh, manifesting in different ways in the classroom, whether that's in the readings and how we're thinking about who we're reading and whether that person is like established or not, but also just like physical power in the space, right? Like in, in a classroom, I tend to be the teacher that if, if we're in a physical classroom, I walk around, I'm very much the like on my feet kind of teacher. And that creates a physical power, you know, uh, differential because students are sitting typically, right? Um, and sometimes I sit with them if they're presenting, I will join them in the spaces. It's it's like my way of trying to shift the power, but I know it's never going to be perfect, right? Um, so we think a lot about power and how that impacts, you know, our community and how we're going to engage with one another, but also with the things that we're looking at and things that we're researching. So I'm finding myself thinking more and more about self-care, um, even more prioritizing mental health in the classroom and talking, having like as as honest of conversations as I can with students about those things. Because to say like everything we're doing is important, sure, in the classroom, but it can only go so far so far as we can engage it and take care of ourselves along the way. 
So yeah, I, I try to make sure I'm always asking students where they are. And I do a lot of like regular check-ins, um, not just in the beginning and ends of classes, but uh, also via email. So that I keep, uh, even though I don't care about attendance in the, in the literal sense of like counting as a grade, I do always take attendance. And that's just my way of kind of keeping track of who's there and who's not. And um, it will never impact their grade, but I use that as a way to kind of check in. Like, I'm like, oh, I haven't heard from this person in weeks. They haven't turned in a thing. Are they okay? And sometimes just doing that, just, it goes so far. And I, I, you know, I don't need to know all the details of students' lives at all, but it's, those are some of the things I do in my classroom to try to maintain the human first, the the realness or the the we in the room or the you in the room, right? So you emphasize self-care. And as a classroom community, you talk about issues of power. Those are two kind of larger themes of your pedagogy. And a lot of this has to do with how you position yourself as a teacher and the conversations you ask students to engage in. Is there a particular assignment or reading that helps you do this work? Yeah, so I'm thinking of three things, actually. So one is a a week one assignment that I do where I ask students to uh, create a slide, a visual, some kind of thing, a one, one and done kind of situation where they have to include at least three images that represent themselves, no words. Um, and then we use that as a way to present everyone in the space. And as students are presenting, I'll, I try to make the connections in the space. Like, does anyone else have dogs? Does anyone have, like, you know, the, the, just try to create that conversation. And that's usually when students like will find one another in the space, especially when it's the physical space. Um, when I used to teach um, at Louisville during my PhD, a lot of students found out they worked in similar jobs and they had never met. And that was always like an interesting way to create community week one, right? And learn names as well. And in creating slides also creates like a visual association, right? Um, the second thing that came to mind is we always watch Chimamanda Adichie's uh, Danger of a Single Story in week one. And I talk with students about uh, what that means in terms of thinking about power relations, but also um, how we think about all the topics we're going to discuss, that there's not always just one way in, or there's going to be multiple perspectives that we're going to be engaging. And more and more, the third thing I'm thinking about is a sound noise um, anti-racist reading practices. I've been using that more and more since that piece came out in the last year, having students doing more pausing, reflecting, um, writing, just taking a moment, thinking about where they are in relation to the thing that we're doing um, and what that uh, means for us. And I have been foregrounding that as like a learning, unlearning, relearning approach. So various times in the semester, I ask students like, what is something that you've learned or relearned as you've been reading, as you've been engaging or unlearned? Because I think a lot of these things um, require us to continue to assess and reassess our own practices. And I try to model it, but also ask students to do it as as directly as I can, literally in writing prompts um, during classroom, usually more quote unquote low stakes activities that can feel high stakes, but they're not graded. So your teaching and research is extremely collaborative. You've co-written articles, co-presented at conferences, and have been involved in numerous professional collaborations and initiatives. And this feels, you know, super intentional. I'm interested in hearing more about what draws you into this collaborative work and what stands out to you the most about it. I don't know if um, it was intentional from the beginning, right? I think uh, it just became something that I was always drawn to. And I found that I enjoyed it more than working by myself. Not to say that I can't work alone. And I do that too. But there's just something about like having a space of people um, thinking and sharing ideas and people with like all different strengths and weaknesses and uh, experiences, right? 
and just learning from one another and then doing something with that. There's like a different kind of energy that just happens in a space where you can bounce ideas off one another. Makes me think of like writing centers, right? I think writing centers are a great model of this. Um, and that is the thing I have where somewhere I have not worked is <laughs> a writing center, but I definitely lived in them as graduate student in particular. Sometimes it becomes a like, what doesn't draw me to collaborative work? Because the people are like part of the reason why we do some of the things we do, right? Like research is going to people, it's going to communities. And so by doing it with the people, um, it just, I think it's better. It makes us better to kind of learn from one another. And I learn new stuff every time that I can then pass forward to the next project or to the next community. I talk with students a lot about like the value of collaboration. And when we talk about group work and I'm like, I know like group work has this like negative rap of being, you know, historically not the favorite thing of everyone. There's all the like terrible versions of it on television that we see of like the one person does all the work, et cetera. But these are the things we can do with group work that we cannot do alone, that we need each other's strengths and experiences to learn. So those are a couple of things that come to mind. Yeah, so I thrive in those spaces. Let's talk about your co-edited book, Mobility and Composition, Translation, Migration, and Transformation. Can you talk about how this work contributes to rhetoric and composition studies at large and what writing teachers can do with this collection or how this collection offers them new ways to think about teaching and to think about mobility? Mobility's work is pulling from a mobilities paradigm, which comes from Scheller and Uri, and I can't remember what year, so I apologize for that. But it's it's about like thinking beyond movement, like literal movement. When we think of mobility, sometimes we think of literal movement, but it's it's different than that, right? It's not just thinking about what uh, what is considered outside a norm, which is how sometimes movement is thought of, right? But it's thinking of more of a fluid concept. So thinking of like how a classroom is more than just gaining skills or uh, learning of transfer to work toward different spaces, right? But it's, it's, it's more than that in the sense that we have to think about like how we're impacted by or have impact on other spaces, right? Places, interfaces, whatever, what have you. Um, and how we move in and across and about as we do that work. And that has to stay fluid because it's always changing, right? Um, in some of the chapters, I'm thinking of uh, John Center Zappico's chapter where he talks about like literally moving jobs and how your uh, CV ends up being this like constantly transforming thing. That um, And then I'm thinking of like Carmen Kinnaird and um, uh, Rebecca Lorman-Leonard's chapters where they're talking about how students are moving in their classrooms and moving uh, across projects and thinking about their own identities or their own relationships with one another. Um, so in those ways, mobility becomes a really uh useful concept for classroom thinking and it's not just that everyone comes to the classroom in different ways yes we know that deep down but what do we do with that right like how do we give students space to work with the things that they're coming from the different literacies the different languages none, none of this is static and none of it should be static it should be dynamic and moving and adaptable and flexible right your research and teaching also includes graduate student preparation and professionalization so really supporting and advocating for grad students. I think that we're at a pivotal moment in grad school education and rhetoric and composition, thinking through the job market, thinking about where teaching writing happens, talking about funding and financial aid and support, talking about or listening to experiences of grad students, talking about labor conditions and teaching loads and coursework, inequities, alternative routes and professions, reimagining traditional grad seminars, reimagining traditional practices like oral exams and comps, 
etc. It's a long list, and there's a lot of them to reconsider and rethink about in graduate school and higher education. Are there specific practices or policies that you feel like graduate programs should reconsider to better support graduate students in the 21st century? Where do I start? I have lots of feelings about this. Um, So in my research, I'll start with research. Um, My dissertation focused on first generation of college doctoral students, specifically in rhetoric and composition and the ways they navigate academia with their lives. Because I started with the idea that it's already interesting that students are first generation to college, but why in the world do we keep going? And that's including myself. I was both a researcher and and a participant in my own study of 22 doctoral students. Um, because it's interesting to think like what keeps us here in academia of all places, right? Um, or even thinking like academic related, academic adjacent. Um, and it becomes more and more clear that from my participants, from what I learned in that project is that we need better mentoring support systems. And I'm not just talking about mentoring in the sense of like bodies working with bodies, like people working with people. I'm thinking also about like financial support. Um, a lot of us don't have the means or the understandings of what that looks like long-term. Um, we might not be working with really strong financial understandings at all. So even creating those spaces of literacy learning for that in graduate programs can be really productive. Here, we've had conversations very frankly with graduate students where they literally share their paychecks with one another. And, ta- and that's a really hard thing to do because we're not quote unquote supposed to talk about money, but we do. And we do it as frankly as we can because that's how we learn when systems aren't working. We learn that like someone's paying too much or we learn that, you know, uh, someone's not uh, getting something that they're supposed to be getting because uh, we learned that through seeing the cracks in the system, right? And the, and the system might not even know those cracks are there because they might not be paying attention. But if we can see those things up front, we start to advocate for those things. So I think like one of the big things I like learning more and more over time is that first we have to start with livable wages. And I know that's not the easiest thing to say, but it should be. It shouldn't be difficult to at least give students a livable wage um, where they're not having to work two or three jobs to support themselves, where we're not causing more debt on top of debt, because that hurts, right? And if we're asking students to engage in, um, if they're interesting, we also have to remember that not all students are here for an academic professor job, right? That there are other alternatives to you know what that looks like post-master's, post-PhD, but if we're really engaged in having folks continue in the field and do that kind of like research service, publishing work, we have to think about like how we're asking them to engage so much financially. And I, I get stuck a lot on the finance question because I think that even though money can't buy happiness, it can create certain mobilities, right? Um, scholarships help us get through programs, um, then jobs help us live and function so that we can do our jobs, right? So. That's one of the things I think we can do better as a discipline is not just creating uh, a, schol- a one-off scholarship, but creating a system that continues to help you know people flourish and check in and help them think beyond that one moment of a scholarship. Like, oh, I gained you know a thousand dollar thing to go to a conference. Then what? What do I do with that? What do I? How do I support you in publishing the work that you're presenting at the conference? Or thinking about you know creating a new thing or helping support a ne- the next person. And I'm really fortunate here right now, I'm one of the Global Human Rights Fellows. And through that fellowship work, I've decided to use that time to work on creating um, or a proposal to increase the stipends for students, particularly taking away all the fees that they have to pay. Because the fees are hurting them long-term in a way that, um, and they're, I don't think they're, frankly, they're not necessary all the time to have students pay outrageous fees and they could be covered in other ways. So I'm working on a proposal right now with a graduate research assistant 
uh, um, to support that. And one thing we're, we've been doing is looking at, you know, what are the comparable numbers for um, fellowships and things in, in comparable programs, but also thinking about programs that aren't exactly like us, but are maybe ideals. Like, you know, like what, 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 how can we learn from programs that are, you know, maybe doing it better than us um, and are probably doing it better than us in terms of financial support, right? Um, and how can we get there? Like if we have this goal to be a stronger program, how can we get there by supporting students first? If you keep us all happy in the finance world, lots of other beautiful things can happen. Um, and that's, I think that's where I get stuck sometimes is, or in my thinking is, you know, we have to start here with the, the livable means to do work um, before we can get to the work itself. In thinking about the systems that we're creating, we have to reassess those systems regularly. Because I think like the graduate student that was, you know, 20 years ago is not the graduate student that is now. Um, even me, like I've only been out of grad school for this is three years almost. The students that I'm working with are different than I am. Like they have different needs, different goals. A lot of them are older than me. So uh, they also have uh, different lives that they've had before grad school. I went straight through. So I had a very different experience. So like keeping those things in mind is that we have to keep reassessing with the new students that come in. I know that can be challenging because sometimes what we're assessing now isn't going to impact the current, it impacts like the next iteration. So it can be difficult to make those projections, but just continuing to do that, we start to pick up on patterns, just like good researchers, right? We do that work and we start to notice like, oh, like eight people are doing it this way, or this is the typical timeline. And these are the things that typically trip folks up, or these are the things that aren't working, right? Like this comp structure needs work, like whatever that thing is. Assessment is so, so critical to that. And I don't think we do enough time or justice to thinking about not just assessment in our classrooms, but assessment of spaces and what that looks like as we move. Thanks, Ashanka. And thank you, Pedagog listeners and followers. Until next time.